We're certainly thankful for the presence of each and every individual today, our membership at Pippin, the visitors who've come our way, every individual that's here. It's our earnest plea and our strongest desire to, in fact, do what's pleasing our Heavenly Father. And we've assembled on the first day of the week, just as He's commanded. And in so doing, we not only glorify and magnify His name, but certainly we encourage and exhort and exalt each other to follow the things of truth. The lesson today is really the second of a two-part series in which we're going to consider one more time the church in the midst of a rotten culture. Last Sunday morning, as we considered less part one of that series, some of these opening thoughts really will, will be the matters before us in that I hope we can simply pick up from the ending of those thoughts that we considered then. Isn't it fascinating to consider the blessing that's ours to open the Word of God, to realize that in it we have life and that we may have it more abundantly, John 10, verse 10. You may notice about the middle of that slide, we highlighted, did we not, the tension that so often appears between the things you and I learn from the Word of God and the choices and the pursuits that culture so often presents us. We highlighted a number of examples. As you think back to some of them, this next slide will simply be my intent to remind you of some of that without going over the fullness of it again. We looked at some pictures we highlighted our mental imagery as we reflected on not only the perversion that seems so prevalent in culture, but the fact that, in many cases, there is an applauding of it. Those who engage in homosexual matters, others who have made choices concerning transgender matters, you and I highlighted that those matters are sad. They're not worthy of applause. They're not worthy of commendation for bravery. They are highlighted features about poor choices apart from the way of God that individuals have and choose to make. And yet our society so often wishes to stand in applause, to stand in light of great encouragement as if what's being done is truly a remarkable example of courage when it isn't. It just is not. And yet, you and I might ask the question, so in a culture that is directed like that, what should the church do? Where should it stand? What perspective should it hold? And so it was, as you come near the bottom of that slide, we turned our attention to the New Testament book of Titus. Only three chapters now, but as we looked at at least some of the initial thoughts of chapter 1, you'll notice the bottom of the slide, we might ask, did the church on Crete face cultural problems? Did the church on Crete have a tension between what the Word of God demanded and what the culture of that day, in fact, set forth? Please notice verse number 12 of Titus 1. Where there the description is given, and it in a very powerful threefold description of the citizens on the island of Crete, the very place where Paul stationed Titus. It says the people on Crete were known for three things. One, liars. Two, evil beasts. Three, slow bellies. Not only was that an objective appreciation from Paul, even the citizens of Crete admitted it. That highlights, doesn't it, that the culture of Crete was not very positive. It was rather rotten. It was a culture that in fact motivated itself in terms of laziness, 
a failure to appreciate the truth, and individuals, inasmuch as they were evil beasts, chose to live following the animalistic desires of life. I suspect you and I would see a lot of correspondence between then and now if we somehow could venture back in our mind and actually be a citizen in Crete about 2,000 years ago. But what did Paul tell Titus? Was the church to exist on Crete? Or did Paul encourage Titus, you withdraw from everybody and everything? Note chapter 1. In 16 rather powerful verses, Paul told Titus, verse 5, I want you to set in order the things that are wanting. Isn't it easy to appreciate things were wanting on Crete? The culture was in a very sorry state. Titus, here's how you approach it. Here's what needs to be done. You make sure that you ordain elders in every city. Note what some of the qualifications of those elders were. Paul also delivered them. In that very chapter, please note verse number 6. Wasn't it true that it says, if any be blameless? We need men that are blameless standing above the cultural rottenness that's around a man who have an appreciation for the things of truth. And not only that, the husband of one wife. They don't follow the animalistic sexual desires of life. This man's faithful to his wife. He's the husband of one. And it says he has faithful children. That verse closes by saying, "...not accused of riot or unruly." This man's family is not known for excess and riot and things that are unruly. This man and his family are known for things of high regard. They're disciplined. They're self-controlled. They understand the character of what it means to live and to do so even in the midst of rotten culture in a way that they're pristine examples of rightness. Next verse. A bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. You may appreciate that in a culture known for liars and evil beasts and slow bellies, Paul was to find men who were blameless and who had the characteristics we just noted and appoint those men as elders. We're already gaining a feeling the culture is such that it doesn't tell the church what to become. God has already done that and the church stands strong and firm even in the midst of a culture that's rotten. Isn't it so that verse number 9 says, These gentlemen, these men, these elders, they're to hold fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. In the midst of a culture like what we've described, these men that were going to serve as elders of the church in, in Crete, they were going to face no doubt some strong challenges things that were ideas in the minds of men and women, and yet these elders were to be mindful enough of the truth that they didn't bend it or compromise it, but they were able to convince those who were gainsayers. Aren't you beginning to gain an impression? Far from withdrawing, the church is to be a bold light, a city set on a hill that all may see even in the midst of a culture that's dark and dreary and rotten. Aren't you thankful that God has commissioned us that way? We have the answer for that rotten culture. The Bible does. The church has the thing that can help turn that culture to make it more suitable, more pleasing, more right, more healthy. Surely, in light of that, 
our journey through the book of Titus this morning is just beginning. For we've already asserted in chapter 1 the church was to exist in this rotten place. But what else did Paul say? As you and I come to the next part of the lesson, let me invite you to notice lesson 1 was the church is to exist in this rottenness, but it is to always uphold and to set before the bright, brilliant light of truth. But notice lesson 2 as we turn to chapter 2. As you make ready for that, you might note verse 1 of Titus 2, which highlights in us the following observation. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Titus, the culture is not going to appreciate in all ways what you teach and what you preach, and they're not going to stand very wonderfully behind you either. But it mustn't be allowed to change your message. The truth is uncompromisable. It says, speak thou the things that adorn sound doctrine. If they like it or if they don't, that can't change your message. And aren't you thankful that 20 centuries later we still stand on the unchangeable truth of God? You and I don't know what culture may become. It may degenerate significantly more so. But that won't change the attitude that a Christian will take, does it? Things may become very hard and far harder than they are now for us. But it says you and I will always adorn and uphold sound doctrine. Notice what comes next, one by one. To say that the church is then to exist in this place, he turns his attention to individuals who comprise that church. What about individual Christians? I know that I stand this morning before a congregation of individuals, men and women, boys and girls, and all of us are such that we will give an individual account to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. If that be so, then it isn't merely enough to say that in the midst of a rotten culture, the church needs to remain strong. I want to know about me. And I'm sure you'd like to know about you. God, what must I do as a man? You ladies might wonder, so God, what would you have me do? Aren't you thankful that that information has been provided? Beginning in verse number 2 of Titus chapter 2, we find these inspired words. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The older gentlemen were those whom the inspired apostle addressed first. In the sense that you always adorn sound doctrine, first of all, God had some things for the older men of the church in Crete to notice. Things that they were to adopt and things that were to be descriptive of their behavior. Look at that list with me again. The aged men were to be sober. I've tried to give you some identifying words that maybe will help all of us understand by inspiration what God told those older men. That word sober literally means to hold no wine. Now remember, those old men in Crete had seen a culture that was rotten. If it was given, of course, to the animalistic desires, I'm sure that alcoholic beverages were numerous on the island. And yet Paul said, Titus, you've got to admonish and urge and exhort that those old men don't be given to, to alcoholic beverage. 
Now, truly, that word came to identify some additional concepts as well. Sensibility. That which related to being of a sound mind. You'll notice finally, they were to be prudent and wise and to exhibit sound judgment. You and I know it well. It's all throughout the Bible. Those who have advanced to great years, if you please, they have passed through the crucible of experience. They've seen things change. They've seen things develop and fads come and go. But those who are faithful to the Word, those who have in fact been the friend of the Master, they in fact have such a strong element of strength that they can help others. Paul, he told Titus, you tell those aged men, they got to be sober. Now at the very least, again, nothing to do with alcoholic beverages and nothing about that has changed. But it also invites us to notice they're to be grave. Now that word grave, I suppose, has a tendency, a sense behind it that you and I should carefully notice. It means to be dignified, to be serious. Now that does not mean that an older man can't enjoy a practical joke, and it doesn't mean that he can't appreciate the liveliness that can come with happiness in life. What that means is he knows when to be serious, and he knows when to be a bit lighter. An older man knows that. When a circumstance, a conversation develops that has an element of intensity to it and the consequences of it are great, he knows when to be serious and he knows when not to treat it lightly. Titus, you tell those older men to behave that way. In the third place, to be temperate. They must be self-controlled. The younger generation needs to see that. They need to see in this older man one who, despite the fact that he perhaps has the luxury and opportunity to approach many things, he withholds himself from them, despite the fact culture encourages him to do them. Self-control is a vital part of even the Christian life today. All of us are commanded it in the famous words of 2 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In addition to self-control, notice this older man is to be sound in faith. You'd have to believe that there weren't too many men like this on Crete, for the culture was just too rotten. But yet Titus was to admonish them, you be sound in faith. As those that are younger see that which you in fact endure, the perseverance that you manifest, the commitment that you show, you set before them those things that teach lessons far grander than any words by themselves will ever say. We've each so often heard it said, do what I do and not merely what I say. If an older man just stood up and preached these things, it wouldn't be nearly as meaningful as if he not only preached them but exhibited them in his life. Maybe in the final matter, Notice that this older man, these older men were to also be sound in charity. They were to exhibit love. Doesn't the words of John 13, 34 ring in your ears? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. The last thing said to these older men, patient, steadfast endurance, perseverance. Don't give up. 
Culture looks awful, I frankly admit, no doubt. Titus would be quick to say, but you can't give up. Heaven is worth it all. Don't you find it interesting? He started with the older men. Aren't you also interested to notice he didn't give an age limit? What made a man old? We might perhaps take note, Paul called himself old in Philemon, verse number 9. And Zechariah himself was declared to be old when John the Baptist was yet to be born. And given that lifespans back then were far less than they are today, my suspicion is a man would have fit in the category of an old man far at a far younger age than what you and I might imagine today. May each of us as the men of the audience, as long as you're not a teenager... As long as you're not, say, in your early 20s, perhaps appreciate the fact you have the opportunity to set a wonderful and powerful example if you follow a life described by these adjectives. Paul wasn't finished. For you'll notice on the next slide, who else does he address? Not only the older men. What about the older women? Notice, there is room in the kingdom of God for everybody, not just men. But the women have also a critical role that they were able to play in the improvement of the culture in Crete. And so, verse number 3, "...the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior, as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers, at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now talk about counterculture. In the midst of a culture given to lying, evil beasts, and slow bellies, he's telling women to behave in the ways that you and I just noted. Let's look at them as well. These older women, we're first and foremost to be characterized as ladies of holiness. Verse number 3. Now that word holiness literally has with it, with it the following. In terms of their demeanor, in terms of the manner by which they were immediately appreciated, they were recognized as reverent ladies. You can imagine the dignity characteristic of a woman like this in the midst of that rotten culture. You can imagine how she would appear so different than the typical way most other ladies on that island were living. You might appreciate that she was to be no false accuser. The literal word, she's not a slanderer. She's not given to gossip. She's not given to spreading things that aren't so. She doesn't develop and pursue in her life those things that cast a spotlight upon matters that are not true. In addition to that, you'll notice that she's not given to much wine. Now you and I know that's Paul's way of asserting to Titus that she is not to be given, just like though the case we noticed earlier, not to be given to wine. We understand all throughout the Bible the condemnation placed upon the participating in alcoholic beverages for social consumption. Well notice, whether it be the older men, the older women, the elders, none of them we're supposed to be given to that. You and I, as we stand so strongly, 20 centuries this side of those events, we still appreciate how that culture may so often give a different story. 
what comes next. She used to be a teacher. Older women to be teachers. And the language is very compelling, isn't it? Verse number 3, teachers of good things. Older women, you can do some of the finest instruction in the kingdom of God, completely in the confines as you teach the younger women to appreciate the very things we're about to study. In fact, sometimes the presentation by way of your own example and your instruction are far more compelling and powerful because younger women can identify with you. You're one of them. You may be a few years older than this younger lady, but she sees in you what she wants to be and how her family she wants it to become. For that reason, you may notice, to say that these older women are teachers means they share a conviction. They care so much about the things of truth and the things of God that they are desirous of imparting it to those younger than they. Case in point, look at what they were to do. Verse number 4, as you teach these younger women, you train them. And I think the word's very critical. Actually, in the original Greek, it isn't teach, it's train. You find the means whereby you literally can assist in a very directed measure to train those younger women. May I again say that sometimes the words of that older lady can be far more meaningful and compelling than the words of a man. But suffice it to say, here's what is to be taught and what is to be encouraged in that training. Verse 4, train those younger women to be sober. One more time as you think about that word. Just as surely as you yourself avoid alcoholic beverages and you yourself desire to be of sound mind and proper judgment, you encourage those younger women to do that too. They're going to need the strength to withstand the matters of culture Help them develop it. Isn't it fair to say that the next matter in the list, and maybe this one seems strange, you train those younger women to love their husbands. Now, I thought the day that they married, that was an understood part of it. But aren't you impressed with sometimes what culture can put upon an individual? You see, the loving of one's husband maybe isn't as automatic as one might think it is. Oh, it's true we live together, and it's true that we have some children together, and oh, it's true that we share a lot of things. But as the Bible discusses love and how a husband loves his wife and how a wife loves her husband, there's so much to be said about that. Old women, you teach those younger women to love their husbands. You help them be a proper and devoted wife. You help them to be respectful and reverent of that husband. Now may I say, as you think about all of those things, consider how counterculture that must have seemed to Crete. But notice what else is in the list. Not only teach those younger women to love their husbands, but to love their children. Again, that may seem strange, doesn't a mother automatically know how to love her children? Well, may I say, there are certainly many elements of that that come by instinct. But there are certain other parts of it that come from the experiences of those who are older who can sometimes impart in just a small amount of carefully chosen words things that can make such a difference. Those children, for instance, that 
tend to act in a way that's not quite ideal, maybe in need of discipline, and maybe that older woman, well, when my children were that age, I tried this and it worked. You might think about it. Or maybe there are other instances whereby that older lady can share some insightful wisdom. May we at the very least say, God commanded that those older women be ready to train and teach in these matters. You'll notice one final thing. A few more elements are therein provided. Verse 5, to be discreet. Older women, you teach those younger women, train them to be discreet. Now that word, quite frankly, means something very similar to what we've studied before. Sound mind, avoiding alcohol, always ready to carefully consider the evidence and make the right decision. Nextly, to be chaste. That word chaste means to be pure, to be holy. Now I realize before a woman gets married, you and I know sometimes we have education classes that encourage abstinence. You don't play around in sexual matters before marriage. But notice, this is to ladies who are already married. And still the admonition, encourage them to be pure. Conduct your life in a way of holiness, uprightness, so that you give no occasion to the adversary to be reproachful. Don't you like that wording? Besides chaste, notice, you teach those younger women to be keepers. Now that may sound a bit unusual. What does that mean? The literal word means to be a worker. There's a work for women to do, and it was so back then, isn't there? Paul, you encourage that in this culture where there are some who are known as slow bellies, that is to say lazy gluttons, even the younger women, they need to be workers. Doesn't it remind all of us that God expects us to utilize our skills, our talents, our abilities in the way that would be befitting of His kingdom. Finally, the phrase, at home. Now you'll notice Paul doesn't say only at home. He doesn't command her to always only be at home. But suffice it to say, the home is her domicile. She is to be the one because God has equipped that woman in a very special way, unlike a man. She is able to run that house in a way no man can. She has the capability of organizing it, setting it forth, maintaining it in a way that's very different than the way a man would do it. God made her that way. She is to take care of those matters and ensure then that that husband and the family, that they have those matters that the home requires by way of appreciation. Finally, she's to be good. A very broad term including kindness. May we say again, this sounds so different, no doubt, than the culture in Crete. Paul isn't finished. Titus, there's some more people to address for not only is the older men and the older women, in fact, do they have responsibilities. Why don't we turn our attention to verse 6. As you come to verse number 6, we appreciate that those older women were to teach again the younger ones to be obedient to their husbands, verse number 5 that the Word of God be not blasphemed. There certainly is a sense in which that phrase isn't terribly acceptable in our current society, as no doubt it wasn't then either. The wife to be obedient to the husband? 
I suppose especially since the 1970s and the feminist movement, that has been looked upon with disfavor, especially since then. But you'll notice it's a part of the Word of God. There was a time when in most marriage ceremonies, a phrase like that had its place. To the, to the bride, the preacher or the officiant would say, Do you promise to love, honor, cherish, and obey all the days of your life until death do you part? I suppose in recent times, some have chosen to remove the word obey. You'll notice whether it's said or not, it doesn't remove it from the Bible. It doesn't remove it from the Word of God. And so it's a vital consideration, isn't it? But in verse number 6, what about the younger men? So having addressed the older men and women, the list here is much shorter. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. That word exhort again highlights an admonition and a very strong one at that. Titus, you impress on those younger men how needful it is that they be motivated with an attitude of sober-mindedness. As you can see, they need to make sound judgments. Now those younger men, I know that you and I have often heard those phrases, can I sow my wild oats now? And the answer is no. Young people, even when you're young, make wise decisions and set on course a name that is so meaningful, one to which others will look with respect because of the choices that you've made and the life that you've demonstrated. Don't mar that name. Don't tarnish it by making foolish, impetuous choices. But live wholesomely with sound mind and proper judgment. Are you gaining a feeling that this church in Crete if the individuals who are members of that congregation would exhibit characteristics like this, they would stand out, much like, as the old saying goes, a sore thumb. Culture would see them as different. It would appreciate that they were motivated by something unlike what culture was. It perhaps is fair then to say that it brings us to lesson three. So lesson one, the church can and must exist in this rotten culture. But lesson two, it boils down to the individual choices of men and women who choose to do the things that they should. Lesson three comes later in Titus. As you think about it, I've simply entitled it this. The church and all those individuals that comprise it is such that they are to be a pattern of good works always upholding what is wholesome and sound, what is truthful and right, what is according to the Word of God. I mention that because look at the number of times that the chapters 2 and 3 mention it. May I direct your attention to chapter 3, verse 3? For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. That's bound to be one of the most dramatic changes in all the New Testament. Here's what we were like before the gospel and here's what we're like now. After the love and kindness of God appeared. Aren't you thankful to be a Christian? Excited to live in some of the ways that we've studied this morning. You'll notice that Verse number 14 of chapter 2 says it like this, "...who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity, 
and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. There it is. This Christian, be it man or woman, zealous of good works. Chapter 3, verse 14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. To maintain good works. What about you and I? Maybe on Sundays we're so motivated with the intent to maintain and to pursue good works. What about when Tuesday comes or Friday? Is our consistency such that that maintenance lasts all the time? I hope that it is. I trust that it is, for God demands it to be so. This maintenance of good works calls us to appreciate then that on Crete and in Putnam County, Tennessee today, the Word of God, the truth of God, the life that it demands, the purity of the church, all of that converges and focuses on lesson four, the last lesson of our morning. For in lesson number four, we find that Paul insists in the life of Titus and in those to whom Titus preaches a diligence in relation to the doctrine. Culture, again, may well not appreciate it and may well excuse it and may well often very antagonistically oppose it. But it doesn't change the following notice. Chapter 2, verse 7. In all things showing thyself... Titus, a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Titus, you live a life of sufficient holiness prompted and motivated by the truth that you preach, and a life that demonstrates and exhibits it, that even those who do not agree with you, they'll have nothing bad to say about you because they'll admire and respect that for which you stand and the life that you live in defense of it. Doctrine is uncompromisable. As you and I wonder what the future may hold for our culture... I hope that we've seen some truths in Titus that have embedded in us a desire that we too will be like what Paul commanded of Titus, to set in order those things wanting. Is there something wanting in my life? Is there something wanting or lacking in yours? If you aren't right with God this morning, though the culture may be happy with where you are and what you're doing, don't be satisfied with it. Don't be pleased with it. Because God's proverbially crying. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be with Him in heaven forever. But you can only be there if you serve Him faithfully. As we close that slide and close this lesson, you notice that there are things that we've learned that we are to be and there are things we're not to be. As we each examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith... The opportunity is given to us to respond to the gospel in this conclusion slide. Basically summarizes our two-part lesson. Culture may be rotten, but the church is pure. It's blemishless and spotless because the Lord made it that way. And you, you and I must live individual lives that demonstrate that holiness. Does that characterize you and me? If, if it If it does not, then we're part of the problem. 
we're part of what's holding the church back from being what Jesus wants it to be. Today, as you analyze yourself and as I do the same for me, if you find that there's something amiss in your life and it's a, it's a public matter and you want to make it right, have courage. Have in yourself the understanding that the God of heaven wishes for you to be saved and He's made a way whereby that can happen. You need to come before brethren. If you've already been become a member of the church, make confession of those things and ask them to pray to God for you. If you've never become a Christian, though, may I say that the blood of Jesus Christ is awaiting if you will make contact with it in baptism. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and then be humbly and submissively immersed in water. As such, you contact the Lord's blood, and as such, you're forgiven. Today, if we could be of help to anybody in this audience, we would wish so much to be that person of assistance. We would invite and urge you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.